Planning Board will come to order. Good morning. This is our meeting for Thursday, May 3rd. We'll start with the consent agenda. Um, we have two resolutions. I'm going to take them up separately because I know there are abstentions. Resolution number one, is there a motion? Second. All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? The motion carries. Resolution number two, is there a motion? A move. Second. All those in favor say aye. 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 Oh, didn't mean to say aye. I abstain is what I meant to say. Okay. Good. Record plats. We have uh, one record plat. Is there a motion on the plat? Move approval. Second. All those in favor say aye. 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 We have two cons other consent items, an extension request for a project plan review and a rescission of approval on a subdivision plat pursuant to an order of the Montgomery County Circuit Court. Is there a motion on those two items? Second. All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? The motion carries. And we have one set of minutes, April 5, 2012. Is there a motion on the minutes? Second. All those in favor say aye. 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 Any op opposed? The motion carries. Okay, item two, Stony Creek Road preliminary plan. Good morning, Catherine Holt, Area 3 Planning, Stony Creek Road Preliminary Plan, 12011150. The property is located on Stony Creek Road, and Travilla Road is to the north. River Road is here to the south. The property is 17.29 acres, located at 12010 Stony Creek Road in the 2002 Potomac Subregion Master Plan. The property is designated, excuse me, Stony Creek Road is designated as a rustic road and the Potomac Master Plan, which amended the 1996 Rustic Roads Functional Master Plan. And Stony Creek is here and it is located in the Sandy Branch sub-watershed of the Watts Branch. Today, the property looks like this. There is a farmhouse here with various barns and two riding rinks. This is a revised preliminary plan which shows the lot lines and the septic reserve fields. The application is for four one-family detached residential lots with on-site wells and, a, and septic fields. The lots range in size from two acres to six acres and two lots will share a driveway the light gray in the photo shows the fire and rescue turnaround areas. The property will retain 4.31 acres and clear 0.37 acres of existing on-site forest. The large area of Stream Valley buffer will be, will be placed in a forest conservation, excuse me, in a category one conservation easement to protect the steep slopes and forest resources. The amount of forest stays well above the forest conservation threshold for the property. The, application, the applicant is required to move any of the existing gravel or asphalt surfaces seen here within the proposed forest, con 
within the proposed Category 1 conservation easement and revise the limits of disturbance to accommodate those changes. Under the RE2 zone, this property at 17.29 acres would yield a, max of, a maximum of eight lots. Because of the environmental constraints seen before, the septic reserve areas and the well arcs, the property will only yield four lots. Use of the existing driveway access point as required by the Rustic Rose Advisory Committee necessitates impacts to the critical root zones of four specimen trees. Without the variance, an unwarranted, an unwarranted hardship would be imposed upon the applicant. And this tree here, the black locust tree, currently has rotten fungus and is within the utility easement, and that one is to be removed. And the mulberry tree here has um, split trunk and is rotting, and that is also proposed to be removed. The applicant responded to staff's suggestions to minimize impacts to these trees by moving uh, utilities, shifting the limits of disturbance, and proposing stress reduction measures to improve their survival and those trees are shown in by the yellow dots. Catherine, can I just yes. make one point? Sure. This is just formality, but I did read through the applicant's submission in terms of requesting the variance and yes. request for hardship and, and that was clear. And from what you just stated, it makes clear that the staff does agree that there is a hardship without the variance, but I didn't see that reflected in the report and I would like the report to reflect that the staff did review the hardship um, case and finds that there is indeed a hardship. Okay, thanks. And the preliminary plan complies with the subdivision regulations. The lots conform to the RE2 zoning standards. The preliminary plan is in substantial conformance with the 2002 Potomac subregion master plan. The preliminary plan meets the environmental guidelines and complies with the forest conservation law. Staff recommends approval with conditions. Any questions? Other questions? Any questions, folks? Oh, I thought this was very well and clearly presented. Uh, good report. Mr. Thank Klein, you. does the applicant wish to make um, a statement or be here for questions? Good morning. The staff report was very well prepared and presented, and the, all the conditions are acceptable to the applicant. Thank you very much. So concisely stated. <laughs> That's the way you like to start your morning, isn't I, it? I, I, I agree with you. Some, yeah. Never say more than you need to. I'm just giving you more time to talk about accessory apartments and things of interest. Well, that is going to be a much more lively discussion, I expect. No doubt. Um, do, do we need to do anything to the resolution in light of Ms. Presley's concern about the hardship discussion? We can add a, a sentence or two about the hardship in the resolution. Um, does the planning board just want to state what that sentence is so we can approve? Yeah, Ms. Presley, do you have a, a, I'd like to, us to be able to approve the resolution at sure. the same time. Do you uh, have an idea of what you think that I do. I'm, I'm going to go to another report we have in our binder. Take me just a second. So yes. hold on. Uh, if I could interrupt, Rich Weaver from Area 3. We, we did put a slide together and did uh, make a statement on the record that kind of went back and made the, app, the justification for the unwarranted, that it would be an unwarranted hardship. So we got that into the record by uh, the presentation in the uh, slide presentation. But um, 
yeah, we need the language in the resolution. And um... it, Chris, Christine, if you look at the um, Glen Alden Preliminary Forest Conservation Plan, that seems to be how we've consistently been uh, doing the reports of late. And there is a clear section that um, that outlines the response, the variance request, um, discusses what the applicant uh, put forth as a hardship and the staff analysis. And while I don't, I don't think, you know, for the interest of time and for this applicant's approval, I don't think we need to go into that detail. If we could at least capture in a statement that you could craft that um, the staff has reviewed the applicant's request for variance, um, you know, and based on the hardship presented, which I think you stated pretty succinctly, so I don't, I can't redo what you said uh, relative to the the trees that would be impacted. Just something simple like that, and and finds that the hardship, you know, is indeed that there is a hardship without a variance. That if you can make it simpler than that, I'm okay with it. Just reflecting that it was reviewed and acknowledged. You know, the hardship is not in the findings that we make. So right. I guess that's why it doesn't appear here. Um, we were trying to move towards making the staff reports shorter. And so I think that's why you saw the, the, the several page discussion that we have been having that includes the applicant's entire response on the variance was taken out. So I'm, I'm hearing that one planning board member wants it taken in left in so I guess I want to know what everybody else thinks if, well if you look at the bulleted points one through four will not confer upon the applicant there's a that's I, the I second that's the second piece of what we're to find it, I understand but that was kind of where the unwarranted hardship argument was made in the staff report but uh, we can there's a lot of good material in there we can pull that out and put it into a separate section if that's the pleasure of the board and, and in response to the chair's statement, I'm, I'm not interested in expanding the reports, but just in capturing on the record, even if it's one sentence, the fulfillment of the full thing that we're supposed to review in the, the forest conservation variance, or I mean the, the tree safe variance. Yeah, I, I thought that these were the findings we needed to make. Am I wrong about that? I mean, is there an actual hardship finding? I know that the applicant has to submit something saying this would be a hardship. But if we don't, if the staff And I know it's a little strange that we don't therefore have a corresponding requirement to make a finding on hardship, but it seemed like that was the way it was written. Mr. Do you Weaver? have that section, Christine? Because we went through this, I know, um, just prior to to your arrival. And you could just give me one moment. Thank you. It, it was a prerequisite to the findings we make. So if there doesn't exist a hardship, we can't and don't need to make a finding as to whether or not it confers a special benefit. And it says that the applicant in, in the, the laws, I'm trying to remember, and Christina's looking up, requires the applicant to submit the reason and the staff to. Are you the planning, I'm sorry. Were you looking for some, something that was similar in um, item number, item number four? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, item number four on page six. Yes. Is that what? That's what you're looking for. Yeah, the, the applicant's justification has to describe the conditions that would cause an unwarranted hardship. That's correct. So the applicant needs to describe that it's not, but 
that kind of infers also that the planning board has to agree with the applicant that it's unwarranted hardship. And then the four factors, the, the planning board needs to make a finding on the four factors. So we could put in just a. It's a very simple statement on page five of the report that Mary's referring to lists the staff analysis and says that staff has reviewed the application and agrees that enforcing the rules would deprive the landowner of rights. That, that's sufficient hardship and then there is an attachment in this case in both cases the submission of the applicant so I, I just think it's important would you like us to just put in a, a sentence that says the planning board agrees that enforcing the rules would deprive the landowner well I think that the chair is right in that it's not that's not the finding we make the staff has to make that in order to bring it to us because they could have said if, if it didn't warrant it that didn't warrant we wouldn't be making findings so the way this is listed as the staff has reviewed the application and agrees that enforcing the rules would deprive the, the landowner of rights seems to fulfill. Do you have this? Do you have the section there, Christine? And I know we. The, the, the section says that the planning board must find that the applicant has met all requirements of this section before granting a variance. And one of the, and requirements, one of the requirements is that the written request include the unwarranted hardship. Um, so, if we add a sentence in here that the the planning board. That would have to be in our resolution, right? And the, right, but the we're talking about, That's I fine. want to make sure that the, we, since we're, since we're, we're set up here to approve the resolution today, mm -hmm. I want to make yes. sure that the resolution has in it whatever we think is necessary. That, that would be fine for me. And, and, and I just think going forward, even if it's as simple as what's uh, on the, right, on, exactly, that in the future that, that sort of at least gets uh, on the record from the staff's perspective as well that it was reviewed. Okay, so can I put in there a uh, resolution, a sentence that says the planning board finds that enforcing the rules would result in an unwarranted hardship for the applicant? Well, we don't usually make that finding. I don't think that's what Commissioner Presley's asking for. I think what she's asking for is a statement that the applicant has complied with all the requirements of this section, including providing um, a justification for the variance request that describes unwarranted hardship. No? I mean, we don't normally make a finding that there is unwarranted hardship. It just sounds as Christine In essence, we do it if we accept right. the staff draft. Well, that's not the in the staff, staff report. And not in this one, but it has been in every staff report. Not really. I mean, there's usually a section, like we, you can see it in, the, in item four. There's a section that says, here's the applicant's justification. And that includes the unwarranted hardship. And then following that justification, there's the findings. And there are four findings. Sometimes the findings discuss unwarranted hardship. But the findings that are listed in, in the report we're reviewing now versus uh, tab six only review the findings that one would make if a oh, hardship is first established because you wouldn't go to those findings to determine whether there's a special benefit if there's no hardship that justifies the, the variance. I, I think Mr. Weaver, do you think that staff was implicitly making a finding of, that there would be hardship? Well, I, if we look at the, for, the word hardship was used in the board's finding under number one, that it would confer, that granting a variance would not confer upon this applicant a special privilege. That's different than and, suggesting that it would be a hardship not to. And I used the, to. the term in the staff report, the term hardship was used as a as to to say that there would be a hardship if if this was done it was it would not be atypical to grant a variance or or 
review of variance for this particular subdivision uh, because of certain limiting factors of the property. And there's factors and I guess for I'm not course. understanding why in the last at least six months we have consistently been listing them because it was a point that was made several times about not not acknowledging the full section uh, that we're to comply with. So that's something that has been asked over time and the, the reports, and Christine, correct me if I'm wrong, but have been consistent with what we have in our binders in item four. Yes, and it was, a, it was a change and a desire to be able to streamline our process that one thing we might be able to do was to stop putting in the entire applicant's justification since those are not findings the planning board makes. I, I, I believe Mr. Klein would like to say something well, too. Oh, I, I don't want to get involved in how you handle your opinion, but I was going to say, Good why decision. don't you just say that uh, we make the finding that it satisfies the requirements of 22A adequate to satisfy the requirements of the ordinance. In other words, not get into all the individual findings, but the board finds that the, uh, the justification satisfies the requirements so that we could grant the variance. I believe it's correct to say that the board finds that there is an un unwarranted hardship here okay. because they have to find, you have to find that everything, the applicant met all the requirements of this section. And, and that is how we have handled it in, in other cases. I think that makes sense and I'm not asking for the entire uh, justification to be included in the staff report because it says an attachment is fine, but the simple statement that the staff has reviewed as, as we heard this morning even on the one slide, I think would satisfy me. So if I add just the one sentence, the planning board finds that the enforcement of the law. That enforcing the law. rules, the law would uh, create an unwarranted hardship. Result in an unwarranted hardship for the applicant. Period. And that review of a variance is therefore appropriate. I mean, that's really the threshold question. Is it right. justified? If it's justified that there may be an unwarranted hardship, then let's look at the variance. And the variance has the four fine supports to make. I, I, I understand. Uh, well, I guess we should make sure that that kind of statement is in staff reports okay. in the future so that it's clear that the staff report supports the resolution. So, well, why do you think it's not there? Because, because I don't see the words unwarranted hardship. Maybe I missed them. I did read every word of the Unwarranted staff hardship was not. Is what you're saying that unwarranted hardship is the flip side of no of no special privilege or no uh, well unwarranted hardship? It's, it's the it, threshold. It, the law says you shall not touch the, you shall not touch these specimen trees. But it does say if if that enforcing that law provides an unwarranted hardship, then you may seek a variance, and they have to justify the unwarranted hardship. And, and you know if I can't touch these critical root zones, I don't. We, uh, you know, I don't get four lots. I don't get two. I don't get three. I don't and get the point, anything. But the point, the connection back to no special privilege is that you can't do what somebody else would ordinarily expect to be able to do with this. That's correct. Similarly situated yes. property. I think the clearest and cleanest way in the way that we have been consistently doing this is just to add the one sentence that I had stated before into the resolution and in future staff reports that sentence should also be included. Okay. Are you satisfied with that sentence? In these, may I ask, in the staff report though, should we be similarly brief in our review of the applicant's justification? It's just, it's just a statement that you reviewed it and you agree. I, I mean, that's okay. I think the only thing. Okay. 
as you would always, it's, it's a requirement that the applicant actually submit that in writing. So you could have it as an attachment as long as the staff, you know, indicates to the board that okay. we have reviewed this and it is indeed a hardship. Very good. Okay. That's, that's, I think, the piece that was missing before and then was added in over the last year. You're not suggesting that we get the backup. I, I, really want, I don't want to see it's it. included it's oh, it's attached anyway it's something yeah. they have to do but it doesn't have to be in the staff report one step forward two steps back one is step side is that a motion there. I'm not sure that was a motion but I'd be happy for someone to make one if it needs to be then with I would move approval um, with the one correction as noted to the resolution second any further discussion Hearing none, all those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? The motion carries. Um, was that a motion on the resolution or on the preliminary on both. plan? On both. We do the motion them in one on motion. Both. Thank you, folks. Okay, we're ready for item three discussion of accessory apartments. Yeah, don't don't be gone too long. <laughs> Me too. Mr. Russ, you can go right ahead. For the record, Greg Russ uh, from Functional Planning and Policy, and uh, also have Pam Dunn here uh, as well. Um, uh, this ZTA is actually a, a proposed ZTA, um, which basically, for those who don't understand this process, uh, is the 
the initial step of, of a proposed ETA, which means we are proposing it from this end, from the planning board standpoint, to be transmitted to the county council uh, for introduction as a formal ZTA, which would then come back to us for, for further review um, as a formal ZTA if the planning board decides that uh, it's warranted to be transmitted to the council and the council decides that they want to introduce the ZTA. Um, so just just giving you an idea of how this uh, process works. Also, uh, a major portion of this ZTA was uh, also included in as part of the zoning ordinance rewrite uh, project. Um, it, it was uh, has since been pulled from the the, the rewrite project to uh, to be addressed uh, uh, more focused I'll, I'll put it that way in, in terms of uh, having the focus um, uh, directly on this particular item uh, simply because uh, in, a, in a number of the the meeting zap meetings as well as subcommittee meetings um, there have been there have been uh, recommendations uh, from a wide spectrum here. Some who believe that the special exception process should remain in place for accessory apartments and others believing that with the right parameters in place, uh, accessory apartments under certain circumstances and, uh, and standards uh, could be allowed by right in certain zones. Um, uh, so that being said, uh, I'll uh, move into uh, the formal part of the, the, the presentation here. Uh, one, uh, one aspect here of this, this uh, slide discusses some of the benefits of accessory apartments, whether they're special exceptions or, or, or by right, and, and clearly they provide a, uh, uh, or help with the housing affordability in, in terms of of uh, allowing people to to maintain their dwellings while having uh, uh, someone living in an accessory apartment uh, to maybe even help pay the uh, uh, the mortgage. It provides a greater range of housing options um, for our citizens, uh, more affordable uh, units uh, as compared to maybe even. Uh, apartments uh, located in, in high rises in some of the, the, the CBD or, or metro station areas. Uh, also, uh, they, they help in facilitating seniors' ability to, to age in place um, through added income or, or space for caregivers, um, et cetera. Um, and uh, it fosters investment in the existing um, um, housing stock. Uh, it it helps to integrate uh, affordable housing um, into the uh, the communities at, at large. Uh, just some of the, the facts uh, associated with uh, uh, the accessory apartment and accessory apartment program. Um, one, we know that they're by special exception only um, right now. Uh, uh, the approval process is, is designed to address concerns pertaining to, to maintaining neighborhood quality through exterior appearance, providing adequate parking, and, and protecting against the over-concentration of uh, this type of unit in any one area. Uh, 
uh, current regulations can be expensive uh, depending on uh, the, the time frame and issues associated with, with a particular uh, special exception uh, proposal um, with the Board of Appeals. Um, in terms of actual numbers, uh, we, we, we average about 10 accessory apartments approved annually uh, by the Board of Appeals. Um, and uh, with applications actually in the works, almost all of them are approved. Um, the few that aren't are not have typically uh, not been because of issues related to the actual accessory apartment it, itself, but it, it may have been because of issues of the of the house uh, in terms of maybe not meeting certain setbacks, et cetera, that that were uh, associated with that that dwelling. So you mentioned roughly ten annually. So how many in total? Maybe no more than twelve. I mean, you're saying the ones that don't get approved or few in number how many total in a year do you have a sense of that you know I, I can tell you that um, you know I ran the office that did those hearings for eight and a half years um, and I've been in contact with the person who runs it now and in the last ten years um, my understanding is exactly three accessory apartments have been um, denied and all three were for reasons that would also be denied if they were limited uses that were being reviewed under standards similar to the ones proposed here, they were apartments that exceeded um, that in one case it was it was larger than the main dwelling, so that would not be approved under the standards our staff has been approved has been as proposed as Mr. Russ said in one case it was that the building itself didn't meet the setbacks so if you have a building that doesn't meet setbacks you're not allowed to add another use and then there was a third one where the apartment um, was greater than 1,200 square feet. So that would also be denied under the standards here. The reason that they are almost never denied um, is because of the way special exceptions exist in our zoning ordinance and in Maryland case law. It is very difficult for any special exception to be denied. Thus it is writ the standards are written um, so that there has to be something very unusual about a particular application in order to support a denial. So you would, and it's hard to, um, it's hard for me to come up with what would be unusual about an accessory apartment that would not make it fail the written standards. If it's too big, it fails the written standards. Um, it's really, so we've done, you know, I've done, and I can't even count how many cases of, special, of those accessory apartments I've done. And um, sometimes there was opposition in the form of letters. Occasionally, someone would actually come and testify. And what they um, almost always said was, we shouldn't have rental housing in a single family neighborhood. And you know that's a policy decision for the county council. And even as a special exception, the county council has made a decision that rental housing under certain circumstances is OK in single-family neighborhoods. So the frustration that um, people in opposition to a particular application felt was really with that underlying policy decision that we're going to permit these unless there's something really unusual that would cause severe adverse effects on the neighbors. Um, so we've had cases and special exceptions that were approved. Usually they weren't 1,200 square feet, but sometimes they were and a 1,200 square foot apartment under the current 
standards um, could allow, I think, five, five applicants, five occupants. Um, you think it's six? It's based on habitable square footage, so that's a calculation that DHCA makes. You know, this uh, proposal from our staff would very explicitly limit the number of occupants, occupants in a way that is not tied to habitable square footage. And so, those severe adverse effects on the neighborhood have to be non-inherent, is that Well, correct? they have to be, yes, that's the whole concept. This, you cannot deny a special exception unless there are non-inherent adverse effects. And non-inherent is a sort of term that's a little bit hard to wrap your mind around, but um, the way it has been applied in this county is that it means something that's really unusual, something that's totally not typical for this character of use. Um, you know, it has been applied in settings like, um, in outside of accessory apartments, like a daycare center that wanted to be located on a site that was on a, a road that was really narrow and really bad sight lines and no sidewalks. And the master plan had very specific language about not doing anything commercial there. So there were a number of different factors that were non-inherent to a child daycare center because you wouldn't normally expect a child daycare center to have all of those features. Those features are not necessary to having a child daycare center. So it has to be something really very unusual. And my point in asking that question is that when opponents testify to the effect that they think that a special exception for an accessory dwelling would have uh, adverse effects on the neighborhood, they're likely to be frustrated in their attempts to get that rejected because what they see as adverse effects are not, in fact, under the law, considered a basis for denying the special exception because people will come and say, I, don't, I think rental housing would have a horrible adverse effect on my neighborhood, and the hearing examiner will say, well, that may be or may not be, but it's a policy judgment that's made by the council, and under the law, the inherent effects of a, an accessory unit are not a basis for denial. So you're, the, the reason yes. I'm drawing you out on this is to, make the, is to try to make the point that the, that the current system sets people up for frustration. I, I agree with you. I, I think that's well said. Do, do the, the non-inherent effects include things, I think as you're suggesting, that have to do with the particular setting or could potentially? It can potentially. be the site or it can be the nature of the use. Um, Sometimes you can have something that, um, like you could have a, a school, for instance, that's just huge, you know, a thousand students, for instance. Well, that's really not typical. Or you could have a school, we have had, um, trying to draw up the recollections, you know, it's amazing how much falls out of one's memory. But I, I think we, you could have um, a school that wanted to have classes all day on Saturday. Well, that's really not you know, most of our private educational institutions operate Monday through Friday, and they might have a daycare, a, a day camp in the summer, but typically they don't hold sessions on Saturday and Sunday. So if you had a school that wanted to have classes on Saturday or Sunday on a regular basis, that would be a non-inherent characteristic of that particular application. And so that would justify the Board of Appeals considering then the whole totality of the adverse effects including non-inherent and inherent. The difficulty with accessory apartments is that they almost never have a non-inherent adverse effect. I'm thinking in terms of, of areas maybe where 
parking has been uh, unnaturally restricted. So an example where maybe the streets were created too narrow in a first instance and then um, parking was removed from one side of the street, then you might have how, how would it be viewed if, if there were you know, two occupants or two new cars? Would that even be considered because it has more to do with the, the non-inherent effect of the particular site versus the use itself? Well, I can tell you that um, the many, many accessory apartment applications have been granted under those circumstances in the last 10 years. Um, and sometimes the number of cars permitted for the use were limited. Um, and I think that's an issue that we can talk about okay. today. Um, it is an issue I've also discussed with staff. It's a, it's a difficult enforcement issue. It's a difficult enforcement issue for a special exception. You know, our, our enforcement program in this county is woefully inadequate in general, including for special exceptions. So the conditions that are imposed on a special exception, um, I'm afraid, are very yeah. often violated. So it's an enforcement problem. That doesn't mean we can't put something in the law that says, um, you know, if the, in, under certain circumstances, you can't have any cars. You know, that's one thing that I thought of, you know, in an area that's close to Metro, for instance, or in an area that has parking restrictions on the street, maybe your tenants aren't allowed any cars. Yeah, I would like to talk about parking later, but maybe now it would, it would be an appropriate time to ask about this issue of enforcement generally. And the, because what I hear a lot from people who are concerned about accessory apartments is the idea that well, I've got an illegal accessory unit, you know, right yep. next door to me, yep. and there's 10 people living in it, and it's crazy, and it's unsafe, and right. it's horrible, and it's a blight on the neighborhood. And, you know, the obvious point that always occurs to me is, well, if it's illegal, that's sort of irrelevant to what the, you know, what the legal regime is, because people are, who, have, who have illegal accessory units obviously are outside of the, you know, whatever the rules are, they've ignored them. Correct. But then, they, and so I, I always try to say, well, you know, what's the answer to that? I don't really know, other than, obviously, as you say, we have an, it seems like there's a con, more or less consensus that everybody you talk to says we don't have enough right. enforcement of the, of the code. So is, but is there a relationship, or does the staff believe there's a relationship between uh, bringing some of these people in from the cold, so to speak, you know, making it a permitted use or a conditional use or whatever the new terminology is going to be under the rewritten code to sort of normalize this and, and, and encourage people to legalize their, their accessory units and discourage use, accessory units that are outside the, out, out of bounds. In other words, are people not coming in for a special exception because it's expensive, they have to have a lawyer, they don't understand the process, et cetera. And so they do something that deviates from the standard. And then, you know, you hear these stories about when people call for code enforcement, the inspector will show up and say, well, yes, it's kind of not really legal, but we're probably not gonna crack down on you because we're trying to be reasonable and we're sort of, you know, we don't have a lot of resources to take everybody to court or we don't think we're gonna really in a position to find everybody in the situation, so, you know, go get a special exception now, or, you know, clean up your act and we'll, and we'll not come down, come down hard on you. Is there a relationship between this and trying to, to encourage a different kind of enforcement culture to say, these are gonna be the things that are gonna be allowed, and so we can sort of take those off the table, and we can focus 
enforcement resources on things that are actually egregious, like 10 people living in the basement? Um, well, or, or am I on the wrong track? Well, the only thing that I would have trouble um, answering has to do with the behavior part of your statement, that we don't know how people would behave um, as far as will people that have them illegally come in make them legal, or will that change the complaints? We did call DHC and talk to the manager of code enforcement. They do have 19 code enforcement officials um, working for them. So it's a larger number than most than we had realized even. Um, they do receive complaints on suspected illegal use of accessory apartments. Um, but the ones that are registered living units or are um, accessory apartments that have gone through the um, proper process and been approved, those are inspected annually. So if in fact um, you do provide an avenue for someone to have a legal accessory apartment that then becomes inspected annually, my guess is that you would encourage a more um, legal use of the way in which it's supposed to operate. I would, I would agree with that. That's consistent with my um, past experience. I do want to interject Mr. Anderson, that uh, people typically do not hire a lawyer for an accessory apartment special exception application. Sometimes they do if there's a lot of opposition in the neighborhood. Um, they do often pay to have someone draw up a plan. Not always. Sometimes they, you know, take their house survey and put little circles on it for the bushes and stuff. Um, so the expense is not typically as great as for uh, other more complex special exceptions. Not like a hospital or something. Definitely not like the hospital. And could I ask for uh, your experience with, I mean, I know some of these special exception hearings can take, you know, multiple days over an extended period of time, but are these quick, how long do they typically take if they're? Less than an hour. Okay. There's usually, you know, the applicant doesn't have a presentation. There's usually no one there in opposition. The hearing examiner goes through questions in the zoning ordinance, you know, the stuff like, do you understand that you have to live in one of the units? Are you willing to do that? Do you understand that there has to be only one address for both units? So you have to get all the mail and then divide it up. Um, do you understand that you have to live there at least six months out of the year? Are you willing to do that? How do you plan to deal with parking? So there's a series of questions that the hearing examiner goes through with the applicant. The inspector from DHCA testifies and they will say, you know, sometimes they say this unit is in compliance with the building code. Sometimes they say they don't have two forms of egress. You know, the windows, you know, there are sometimes those high up windows in a basement. Um, and so in order to get a license, not in order to get the special exception, but to get a license from DHCA, you have to make the window larger and put in a special kind of window that you can push out easily in case of a fire. Um, that's a very common thing. Sometimes they will find stuff like the ceiling is too low. You know, you have to, you know, move some pipes and then people will say, well, forget it. You know, that's just not worth it. So then they either do it illegally or they don't do it. I don't know. Um, so DHCA gives an ex does a, uh, testifies, you know, that takes, it's normally quite brief. And typically that's it. And then the hearing examiner writes a report and then the board of month, you know, within, the, they have to do that within a month. And then within a couple of weeks, the board of appeals has a work session and they take it up and they grant it. Um, are, are you are you suggesting that um, this process, depending on the what the council does with our recommendation, would be um, actually more protective of a neighborhood because they can get this legislation 
to deal with a policy that currently the special exception does not deal with? Well, I think that parts of this are more protective. You know, I, I know that people are very concerned about the notion of accessory apartments being permitted as of right, but I think that the, the, this legislation could be drafted to do things like, for instance, I love the idea of only a, making the maximum size 800 square feet in smaller lot neighborhoods. Right now it's 1,200 square feet everywhere in the county. Um, and 1,200 square feet is a lot bigger. I like the idea of limiting the number of occupants. I think that the staff recommended three, regardless of the size. Well, that's a very big change compared to what's currently permitted. Currently, there's no real justification for the Board of Appeals to limit the number of occupants. And can I ask you about the relationship between those standards for a, a use uh, that is permitted as of right and the way that hearing examiners view non-inherent effects? And what I'm getting at is, if the code says it's a permitted use to have three people and it's a permitted use to have up to 800 square feet, does that establish in the minds of the hearing examiner and the way they analyze it sort of a presumption that... Anything that some bigger than that is not inherent. Okay, well, so that suggests that... Would that, typically be, that would typically be the way the hearing examiner would view it. Interesting. Uh, the other question was, you know, the process you described where you go into the hearing examiner and the hearing examiner basically uh, inquires, has a colloquy with the uh, applicant about whether or not they understand the rules. Yeah. Is it your expectation that under, under this proposal that, that the substance of those warnings or, or that kind of interview would, yeah. would happen with the person who's doing the inspection? Well, it would happen at the licensing stage. You know, you would, you would not have the discussion with the hearing examiner or the Board of Appeals work session, which of course the, the applicant doesn't speak during that work session. That's just the Board of Appeals talking um, amongst themselves and to their staff. Um, you, would, you would not have all of that. And I don't know if the intent is, I guess this would be DHCA that would give out these permits. So then DHCA staff would go through the list and say, and they, you know, they would look, how big is this? Does it meet the standards? Does it meet, you know, does the building meet the setbacks? Does it meet building code? They would do the inspection that they currently do. And then they would have to go through with the applicant. Here's the things you're required to do. You have to live there in, in one of the units. You know, there can only be one place where mail comes in. You're only allowed to have X number of parking spaces, or you must have, I think the way the staff wrote it, you have to have at least one parking space. Um, off-site. Um, so DHCA staff would go through all of that with the um, applicant. It, what this discussion seems to imply, which is the reverse of what we're hearing, is that people who would like to have more of these and feel they're important for affordable housing should be opposed to this, and people in the neighborhood who want to be protected should be in favor of this. Well, but that isn't the way it's it you know, seems it's to be working. It, so depend, it depends on their... I, I mean, that's... I think that most people who are in favor of allowing um, accessory apartments, you know, more freely are not going to object to the restrictions like the number of occupants. Um, but, if the, but if the special exception process is so easy that you go in, you do your hour, uh, you don't need an attorney, and you get it, this would make it harder because you would have to comply with all these rules which currently are not inherent, I guess. And, and there's much more restrictiveness to this 
legislation than there is to the special exception, except for the, the going through the yes. process. So you're, you're suggesting we be losing affordable housing. Well, I, I, I mean, that seems to be what you, what well, everybody's describing, it, but well, it I certainly isn't it's what I understood. I would say it is appropriately restrictive. Um, and you, do, you, you, miss, you, you remove a whole a layer of process that, I, you know, it's hard to tell. Does that discourage people from applying? Some people, it may. Uh, you know, I don't really know. I, I, you know, I haven't gone out and asked people whether they didn't apply because they, some people find the idea of going to a hearing in front of a judge-like person very intimidating. It, it appears to me that this proposal would encourage uh, um, accessory dwellings with uh, smaller footprints, with fewer occupants, with, that, are, that are more modest. Uh, so we probably increase the net number of them, but decrease the the size, uh, perhaps the median size of an accessory unit or the number of occupants. In other words, yeah. you would discourage people from coming in and saying, "I want to build an accessory unit that's, you know, 1,500 square feet with six, you know, occupants," because then you're into special exception, and then suddenly they're going to start viewing this as, you know, non-inherent impacts, and you have an argument about parking spaces, and then you really will. You know, have a problem getting over the burden in the special exception hearing. The flip side is it does make it easier and more sort of regularized to do a small accessory dwelling with a limited number of, of occupants, and it makes that more. So it's it's not so much that it encourages or discourages in general the practice of accessory units. It it encourages a particular type of a more limited scope or footprint or however you want to describe that, hopefully impact, and discourages people from building bigger ones or going, and hopefully also discourages them from going out, ignoring legal process, and encourages them to do this the right way, which is, you know, go get a, go get a license, which, you know, which is more of a ministerial act than a, you know, quasi-judicial proceeding. Well, that being the case, if, if that occurs, and it encourages more but sort of smaller units than some of the questions that I would have relative to parking and certainly relative to enforcement. If there are 19 folks now but they can't quite enforce or, or work with the situations we have that have come through uh, both special exception and the ones that are sort of being done, you know, off, off the under the radar, um, then I'd, I'd be interested to know how that ties together how many, who's, who's sort of keeping track of how many are happening by right in, this, in a future scenario, and what is the schedule for um, inspection, you know, what's the process for enforcement, what would be the policy for uh, neighbors or someone involved in that so that there's actually a standard for, um, you know, some sort of check and balance. In the case where I mentioned earlier with the parking, I'd be, I'd be concerned about sort of the density of, of these accessory apartments in any given area and what the net effect would do you, you guys want to talk about parking yeah you know, I think sure. mr russ had a presentation yeah. well, you know i mean really <laughs> uh, you've, pull you've, it out you've of you one question just, at a time you've kind of done my presentation for me and i thank you for that and and i'm going home now and let you guys deal with it <laughs> um, and you did but, such a nice report good oh, job on the report <laughs> um, it was really very good but but in terms of the, the parking uh one thing that's in here that we, we thought was really a, a, a way to handle two issues here. One, the, the, as in the current uh, special exception provisions dealing with over-concentration of special exceptions, 
what we have here in the smaller lot zones, i.e. the R60, R90 zones, uh, as an accessory apartment must be separated from another by at least 300 feet. You know, with the 60-foot front frontages, that's basically under, under standards condition of every five houses. So you couldn't have, yeah, on, for, uh, measured on the side. And, and uh, you could not be located adjacent to, uh, from the real yard standpoint, uh, uh, an accessory apartment located on the next block or next street uh, behind you. So, so that, that, that sort of uh, spreads out the, the potential for, for uh, over-concentration and as well as the issue of parking. I mean, you, you're spreading theoretically. And one more, one more point to this is, you will have to have uh, one on-site or off-street parking in addition to the parking on-site associated with the, the, uh, the uh, residents there. So, Could so, we explore that just for a minute a little deeper? Yes. And if I get too far into the weeds, then I'm sure that I'll get There's back. no such thing as too okay. far into the weeds for me. You know that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I live for the weeds. I, I work really well doing sort of a real-life example. So. I, I won't name the street, but I'm familiar with a street. Um, in the example that you're giving, where if it was every 300 feet from the entrance on, on, either, side, on either side, same thing, from the entrance of this one particular area and through into a court, there could be four, potentially five accessory apartments based on your 300 feet example. Mm -hmm. And this is on a street where, I'm, where I know mm -hmm. that parking has already been limited to the point that that residents with two or three people living in a home mm -hmm. don't have sufficient space right in front of their own home. Some have, you know, small garage issues and whatever. So now try to explain to me how something like that, if 300 feet were to actually go through, because offhand I'm thinking that might be a really too short a distance, because that would create quite a concentration. If, if you presume for a minute, just in a crazy world, that that this ZTA would enable more affordable housing, then the presumption is that a lot of people are going to go after this. It's going to be a great thing, especially as people start to age in our system and so forth. Mm -hmm. So that would dramatically change. If you took my, this, this theoretical street, uh, my example, and imagined a development that had at least 15 other such streets, and if everyone went for it, you would, you would really significantly change the way that those areas function. So what, what would there be in place to kind of monitor over time, even under a scenario where you would say 300 feet would be the, the criteria? How, how would there be appropriate process to monitor or keep that in check? Especially if there are other issues with the areas being taxed in terms of not having sufficient um, infrastructure to support maybe what's already there or what's planned. Yeah, I mean, wow, that's that's a pretty loaded question. But Sorry. but the, but but the but the basic the basic answer is, it all starts with the enforcement part of this. No no question about it. You you have to you have to provide, especially with the mindset that you're allowing by right now. You have to put in place enforcement measures to 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 deal with that. Um, I'm wondering if there would even be some sort of prerequisite, not just because enforcement tends to imply after the fact if there's some sort of filter through which, you know, 
resident neighborhoods could be assured that what I described would not actually ever come to pass. Well, I, what, what about the front is Based on the staff's report, if you look at what is existing right now, if you go, it says no excessive concentration right. of houses. Well, what does you know? What does that mean? Right. You know, in the staff, right. in the proposal, at least it attempts to right. address what that means and control the numbers that could be in a specific area. Right. Now, whether this answers the problem, it, it, whether it really answers the problem, it doesn't, because the enforcement is the issue. But at least it makes an attempt to address the number that could exist. It's an objective test. Yes. 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 Right. yes. Um, on this point, could you uh, review the frontage requirements for these zones? Because it seems to me there's a, there's some of these zones. I'm thinking the frontage is likely to be ample for parking in front of the front of the dwelling, and that you know. But if not, then maybe unless that, it was know, unless the parking was somehow after the fact well right but maybe you know, one thing we might do is recommend a connection between the that, parking requirement and the frontage plus well, the off-street parking we could even have a provision that if there are parking restrictions on the street it has to be a special exception and then you know then you you know those might be there are situations where the Board of Appeals has an important role to play those might be you know appropriate situations for that you know, I was a little concerned about the staff's recommendation to require one off-street parking space because that will exclude a great many homeowners from having an accessory apartment. So I thought that was um, maybe counterproductive, uh, and I, I understand why staff, what you know, what goal the staff was trying to get to. I'm not sure that I'm in agreement with that way of getting to it. Um, it's a tough question, um, but I, you know, I think we could talk about that notion that if there are parking restrictions, I, I don't know how widespread parking restrictions are in the county. So I don't know how big a restriction that is. Well, so in my view, um, just to answer um, Commissioner Anderson's point, uh, so in the smallest of the residential lots that we've recommended, this is the R60, the minimum lot width is 60 feet. So that was the idea that 300 on either side would give you at a minimum lot width for the whole neighborhood of streets along the block. You know, five that's, houses that's not exclusive of the driveway, park. though, right? So the driveway could be what, like 10 or 15 feet wide or something like that? It's inclusive of the driveway because the driveway has to occur within your property. Right. But so right. You, if the minimum is 60, obviously you can't park in front of the driveway. So we're talking about, I'm, right. so oh, what I'm trying to get at is available right. frontage right. for purposes of assuming there is on street, that on street parking is legal right. and has a, there's not some situation. That but you do have to. Um, uh, recognize that you would still be the the principal dwelling would still be required to have off-street parking because it's one off-street parking for this unit so you couldn't have a situation where you're on a block where no one has a driveway and doesn't have the ability to park that that residential unit off the street um, that's you know that's the way the staff proposed to do it was that you would require them to have an off-street parking space but that you know that means in neighborhoods where people don't have driveways they can't have accessory apartments, and, and I think there may be neighborhoods where accessory apartments can work fine, even though there are no driveways. It, it may have to be site-specific. That may have to be a special exception. Uh, but though, you know, that's again, oh, it, it, you know, good, this another issue that you know, there's a lot of, a lot of different pieces, and we don't have to, you know, what we're doing today 
is deciding what we're going to send up to the council. You know, we'll have another discussion about it when council sends it back to us. The council will have a public hearing. There will be, you know, several more discussions about this before anything is finalized. But it would be nice to send up to them sort of, you know, the best package that we can come up with. Is the notion, though, I want to make sure I'm thinking about it properly yeah. because I, I want the record not to be sounding as if I'm opposed to accessory partners because I'm not. Okay. Um, I'm thinking of all the situations that that people would find themselves in and where there would need to be a, uh, a filter, you know, preliminary to getting one or a follow-up. And, and those are problem issues. So in the case where even we are saying perhaps it would be an off-space, you know, off-street parking required, I mean, there are conditions where you could, a person might technically meet that, but it might impose a problem on the neighborhood. And I'm wondering for, for the actual conditions, you know, on-site conditions that I think the chair has suggested those aren't being considered really in the special exception anyway, other than what is non-inherent. Well, only but. to the extent that the Board of Appeals has sometimes put in a condition at the hearing examiner's recommendation that um, required the applicant to put in the lease that the tenants could only have one car. Okay. I'm giving just one example again. One where they some situations where you have shared driveways. Um, you could, uh, one could potentially probably go to uh, DHCA and go to DEP and get a permit, you know, DPS, and because they have a space, technically. Mm -hmm. but, but occupying that space with a vehicle would impact an adjacent neighbor, you know, in a shared driveway. Oh, but a driveway is not a parking space. Um, actually, some of them are not a shared one. Some of them are counted as as spaces. I mean, I could point us to some plans where they are actually counted as spaces. And those shared are the, driveway. Yeah, shared driveway. Um, so that that's too in the weeds for this. My point is, how how do you assure the general public that specific conditions are being assessed? at the front end so that we don't have to only rely on enforcement at the tail end. Because that's where I think most people have discomfort. I mean, clearly when you when you apply for this, because you, you have to register this, like you do a registered living unit or, or anything else, and, um, where you'd have to show where your adequate parking is located for your single family home as well as your, as well as your assessor apartment. Uh, the accessory apartment side of it, clearly we've, we've changed from two in the special exception to one. Uh, but, you know, with the over-concentration issue, we believe being addressed in terms of in the, in the smaller lot zones where most of the, the, uh, you know, the concern is. I mean, the larger lot lo zones, we, we have a 500-foot distance right. um, set up, but in, in the smaller lot zones, that, that, that whole issue of having in place before you get your license um, parking not just for the assessor apartment but for the home clearly, you know, puts the onus on the owner of that property to, to provide that. Now, what happens after that point becomes the enforce, more of the enforcement issue if people aren't adhering to that. Um, that's when, you know, your neighbors and uh, whomever else you know, uh, uh, you know, complains to DPS or, or DHCA or whoever else is involved with that. So. We do have a few speakers signed up. Mr. Russ, was there anything else from your uh, um, presentation I, that you'd like to go through? I, I just, um, just 
I, I'm, I'm placing the, uh, uh, the, the table which has a comparison up so that as part of this discussion and when citizens speak in and we, we speak, we can, we can do the comparisons as we, as we, we do this. It, it just seems to help. I mean, it's a quick reference here. Um, there are other pages to this as well, but. Just be here for questions, uh, which I'm sure will come up. Me too. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I would suggest we go ahead and hear from our speakers, and then we'll have more discussion. Hesse Harris, Ralph Bennett, Meredith Wellington, Marilyn Piety, and Judy Higgins. Ms. Harris, you are first on my list, and I love your hat. Press, turn, that's that big button to turn on your microphone, and then give us your name for okay. the record. Again, it's uh, Hesse Harris. Anything else you need before I begin? Oh. Okay. Well, it's so really interesting sitting here hearing about how we can't enforce any of the rules, and then being told the way to get enforcement is to enforce the rules. <laughs> but I will begin. The proposals for accessory apartments need to be kept in the zoning rewrite so they can be fully vetted and considered in the context of the other changes. To do otherwise suggests an effort to force them upon the citizens without full and proper consideration. If enacted, the amendment would not exist in a, vac in a vacuum. Its impact would be far and wide. Therefore, it, it requires consideration and context. Also, the amendment itself should ultimately be rejected. The term density has been bandied about. The unvarnished word is crowding. The proposed amendment would create a climate of crowding and turn communities of manicured lawns, well-maintained homes, and cohesive communities into slums and ghettos. Historically throughout this country, such communities have been turned into urban jungles because of the type of process envisioned here. The former homes will ultimately become seedy hotels and boarding houses. The detached apartments will become flop houses, which has been alluded to already. Furthermore, the crowding leads to loitering and a breakdown of the so in the social and cultural order. People have respect, lose respect for private property and proper social distance. This all leads to crime, substantial crime. Abuse will not be prevented in this amendment. The existing rules, as has been noted here, are not being enforced or observed. You go through the various communities, you'll see places where existing regulations are not enforced. Lawns have been cemented over to create parking lots of uh, five to seven spaces. The houses are crowded and not kept up. A member of this staff has admitted to me that the manpower is not in place to enforce regulations. I'm sure that's by design. 
housing values are going are going to go way down under this amendment. We have homeowners who are now underwater. If this regulation goes in effect, they'll be drowning. Homeowners and their families are invested in their homes and communities. Renters, many of whom are transients and strangers, will not be so vested. The proposed amendment requires that the homeowner live in the main house, where the full complement of unrelated persons fills the space. That would require that the homeowner live apart from his loved ones. This rule, which is not going to be observed, sets the neighborhood up for absentee landlords and all the attendant negative consequences. Another negative consequence includes poor sanitation. Increased population means trash piles up. Are there going to be increased pickups or larger trash trucks? Poor sanitation invites disease. In addition, rodents and bugs that carry those diseases. Crowded neighborhoods mean crowded schools with all the problems they bring. Children themselves are not safe. A cohesive neighborhood is a, stands as a bulwark against crimes directed against children. That sound um, tells us that your time is up, so I'll need okay. you to complete your thought. Okay, I will complete my thought. I'm going to end by noting the citizens appoint and have elect and elect representatives to advance and protect their interest. This amendment does, does neither. We're not being represented. We're being dictated to. I, am not, I don't like it, and I'm sure my fellow citizens do not either. I'm going to remember this next time I vote, and I take it they will too. If this is an attempt to get a few dollars more in tax dollars, it's penny wise and pale and foolish. Mr. Bennett. Good morning, and thank you for hearing me. My comments will echo much of the thoughtful discussion that I've heard here earlier this morning, so I'll just uh, go through it. I'm uh, authorized by the Board of the Affordable Housing Conference at their meeting yesterday to make this testimony. <clears throat> Permitting small attached accessory apartments with restrictions, but as a matter of right, is a fundamental element of progressive affordable housing policy. It can be argued that many such units exist below the radar now, making their legality necessary as a way of inspecting and licensing. But the impact of this proposal accomplishes much more than that. To obtain authorization for even a small interior accessory apartment can now cost a year in time and as much as $20,000 in fees. Provision of such housing has been an element of proposed housing policy for some years, including County Executive Leggett's Housing Task Force of November 2007, which recommended the by right provision of accessory apartments. Small apartments allow older residents on fixed incomes to provide housing for caregivers or small families whose rent helps ease the ever-increasing cost of housing for fixed-income seniors. Young home buyers can more easily afford housing in Montgomery County if some rental income helps with the mortgage. The rental units provided by accessory apartments can help fill a large need for affordable rental housing. Studies in other cities have shown that rents in owner-occupied rental housing self-stabilize due to the, fami the familiarity of the owners with the renters. And housing assistance is provided in this way for both owner and tenant and without subsidy or administrative cost beyond a building permit. We urge you to approve this measure and send it to the County Council with your strongest endorsement. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Bennett. Ms. Wellington? Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak. Um, I'll be quick. But do state your name. Oh, Meredith we Wellington, for the record, yes. 
Um, I'm speaking in opposition to the ZTA because I think it fails to adequately balance the goal of preserving the character of neighborhoods with the very laudable goals of housing affordability, reducing sprawl, and um, expanding the stock of affordable housing without the use of county subsidies. I asked this board to look at other jurisdictions, staff attached uh, information about Arlington and other jurisdictions and what they did there, and I think it's very, very useful for the issues that you all discussed earlier. First, please improve the outreach to residents to explain to them this proposal and to receive feedback from them. Again, Arlington had like 58 meetings on the issue. They had two community forums. There was notices published. Please keep the accessory apartment section in the rewrite. I don't understand why it's being taken out. Just your earlier discussion on the special exception illustrates the whole problem. It will be special exception now only to be changed in the, apparently in the fall to conditional. And will that be a completely different process? We don't know. There must be a public evaluation of the buy right process and how it will be worked. You've alluded to this how the rules will be enforced, because this is the largest concern of the public. And yet, we have very little information about it. Even you all don't have a lot of information about it. If the accessory apartment is by right, is there any opportunity for citizen participation in the application process? What is the process? Is, is it before DPS? I assumed it was, but maybe it's going to be before DHCA. Will DPS make a field visit before approving an application? Is information and applications independently verified? Once an apartment is approved, how long does the approval last? Forever? How will rules be enforced? What will be the penalties for violation of the rules? Are there sufficient resources to enforce what will be an, a large increase of accessory apartments? I think we can answer a lot of those questions today if you'd like us to. Well, yes, I, and I, I think it should. It was a lot of questions. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I, I've only got three minutes. So I was trying to get it all in. Finish your three minutes, well, and then we'll come the, back. Okay. I ask too, well, is the staff capturing these questions? Because I think that they're okay. Well, I can we'll give you. I can give you a copy. I, I have a copy. I just wasn't able to file it in time, so I have copies with the questions. <clears throat> Although the likelihood that the number of accessory apartments will greatly increase. The standards and requirements for these apartments have been greatly reduced. The proposed DTA reduces the required off-site parking from two spaces to one. It does so even though the ZTA now allows, this proposed ZTA, now allows as many as nine unrelated persons, six in the primary residence and three in the apartment, to live on one property. It's self a change that is not the current law. But that means, very likely, there are going to be more cars. I note that Arlington permits a maximum of two people to live in an accessory apartment, and it on, Arlington only has attached accessory. They did not approve any detached. Um, I have other remarks, but I, um, my time is out, so thank you. And I'll, I'll just give you a copy of the question. Can you, can you read off your questions again? Because sure. I want to hear what they were. Okay. And give, give staff a chance to write them down. All right. If the, for an by right accessory apartment, not talking about the others. Okay? Right. Everything else is by uh, either special exception or conditional. Well, conditional is and special exception are the same thing. Conditional is just the word that the zoning ordinance rewrite uses for special exception. Well, but, well, anyway. Okay, yes, yes, ma'am. What is the process before DPS? And is there any opportunity for citizen participation in the application process for by right? No. 
So there's no notice, there's no, okay. I mean, I suppose it could be created to have notice. Typically, the currently DHCA's processes do not require notice. That's why it's by right. Can I ask a question? Can we get her questions first? Oh, we didn't get her questions. No, I answered one of them, and so that stymied the whole process. Okay, what is the process before DPS? Will DPS make a field visit before approving an application for an accessory apartment? And related to that, is information independently verified? Um, Does the staff wish to answer that now or wait to the end of the questions? Okay. Once an apartment is approved, how long does the, the approval last for? Is it a term of years? Like I noticed in other jurisdictions, sometimes it's only for three years, five years. Also related to that is does it sort of lie with the land? In other words, once you get that approval and you sell the house, does the approval go with the house or does it end? How will rules be enforced? And that goes to the issues you already discussed, the having enough people. Uh, what will be the penalties for violation of the rules? Are there sufficient resources right now to enforce what would be a substantial increase in the number of apartments if this works the way you want it to? How will the county, well, I didn't, I think I didn't even finish this one. How will the county handle the administrative burden of a much anticipated and desired increase in the number of accessory apartments? Those How will my, the county the, handle what? the administrative burden of a much anticipated and desired increase in the number of accessory apartments. Can I stop you on that one and ask the staff, because this goes to this question, which is broader, about the idea that uh, even if you, you know, just said you can have any accessory that you want, that suddenly we're going to have a whole bunch of them. And I remember in the, part, in the ZAP, I think the staff was citing a, a study in Philadelphia, I believe, about how when they uh, made accessory dwellings of uh, permitted use, and my recollection is that something like one out of every 1,000 eligible yeah. properties added a unit per year or something like that. Can you speak to that issue? Unfortunately, I don't have the um, document beside me, but um, we did have some research done, and we did consult with um, the uh, Association of the American Planning Association, and they do research for jurisdictions that request it. So we had sent a request, and this was actually probably in the beginning of the project a couple of years ago. Um, and they accessed a survey that had been conducted of over 47 jurisdictions um, that had relaxed some of their rules for accessory dwelling units. Um, and what they found was, um, and I don't remember the time frame, if it was within, I, I, don't, I know it was longer than a year's period of time, if it was within the first five years or 10 years. Um, it was probably short of in 10, um, of relaxing those rules, they saw an increase in accessory dwelling units of 1 to 3 percent. Could, would you mind but, providing and I'll, that? I'll try to find too. it for you, of course. And I find this an interesting point because we seem to be arguing both sides of this particular equation. We're saying on the one hand that we should, shouldn't get much of a difference. On the other hand, as Mr. Bennett testified, this is sort of being viewed as a way to increase the affordable housing stock. And uh, to me, that's a little bit mentally hard to position because I want to know like, which side are we on. Are we saying we have to prepare for a lot more, which means that then we have to put all the systems in place to handle that, including determining once something goes through, whether it's DPS or whether it's DHCA, knowing how those, uh, those new statistics get related to all of the other things we do in planning. If we're talking about it really being a substantial increase in units, 
If not, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be basing the yes or no on increasing the affordable housing stock because then it would fall back into what what we are doing in planning on a regular basis in trying to encourage higher densities near transit and so forth. If we're really thinking we're going to get this many units, then I have a whole list of other questions. Well, I think at some point, maybe if the community works together, we'll have a metro stations that have been in place for 20 or 30 years where there's been no really substantial, really quite disappointing impact on the land use, the lack of impact on the land use. I think if we if we change the rules to say you can put a accessory park wherever you want to, it's not as though tomorrow everybody's going to rush out and, and start, you know, get out their erector set and put an accessory unit on the back of their house. It's just, I just think that's not the way that people work because they typically are going to want to put an accessory unit in when they reach a point in their lives when they think that they have some money available to invest in, in improving their property by adding it on or because they have you know an opportunity to move a relative in and then later on they may wind up renting that to somebody who's not related to them. It's a gradual process over time and you know maybe the best argument against this is just that it causes so much concern whether it's whether we think it's justified or not that is it really worth having a big argument about it. I tend to think that it is because we got it we're so far behind on what where we need where, where we need to be and making progress to some affordable housing goal and it's only going to get more pressing over time with the changes that we're that we know are going to happen in the county that we have to start somewhere. So to you I guess I'd say it's not a lot that doesn't there's no contradiction between saying it's not much of an impact but we're doing it for affordable housing reasons in part because we got to start somewhere and the problem the solution to affordable housing is not going to be through the MPD requirements that you know whether it's 12 and a half percent or 15 percent or somebody wants to give more density you know bonuses for more affordable housing it's not going to get done that way it's not going to get done just by subsidizing housing create you know with with uh, the, you know the public you know, tax programs that are available and other incentives for, for affordable housing. All that stuff together is not even going to come close. And we can only do what we can do, but we at least ought to take, you know, the incremental steps that we can to try to, to, try to contribute to the, to the solution to that issue. To your point about transit proximity, et cetera, we should be incorporating affordable housing in all kinds of different neighborhoods because income diversity is an important goal. We should encourage neighborhoods that are of, of mixed incomes because that serves the goal of making our of of making of equality in the school system because it serves the goal of of diversity, I think is an end in itself in some in some respects. We shouldn't get totally hung up on the idea that well affordable housing is only something we want to do under some special circumstance or whether it's proximate to transit or it's it's a it's a very special you know, environment where we say, okay, that's where all the affordable housing should go. We should be trying to integrate it into the into each of our communities and to try to win broader acceptance for the idea that this is important and that it's appropriate, and not in every single case, but in certainly in every part of the county, and that there's no place that should be 
where it's simply inappropriate to expect that there's going to be some element of, of affordability introduced to all, uh, to hopefully to all our neighborhoods. You know, from my perspective, um, I have for a long time wanted special, uh, accessory apartments in some, some category of accessory apartments to be available by right because I find that the special exception process very rarely adds anything. Typically, for accessory apartments, that special exception process has no value. Uh, it's a waste it, of public and private resources. Does it cost the $20,000 that somebody I, I don't know. I know year. Mr. Bennett said that. That would surprise me, um, typically. But I, you know, I don't know how much it costs to have somebody do a drawing of your house that is to scale and shows the landscaping and the features. I just don't know the answer to that. Okay. Uh, it I would surprise me. I'd, li I'd like to ask uh, Ms. Wellington, and I've read it in some other correspondence, about not having having this in the zoning rewrite. Um, one of my uh, concerns about the zoning rewrite is the impact it has in certain areas without <laughs> the opportunity for those areas to actually flesh it out like Wheaton did on some of this, the new zones specific to their neighborhood. Um, but this process seems to give the citizens a, a real opportunity to address something in detail that they wouldn't normally have if it was in a, just in a big comprehensive plan that got approved in total. So. I, I kind of think that the way this is being done, as painful as it may be to everybody, uh, gives everybody a chance to vent about this particular subject. And if it were in the zoning rewrite, it, would just, it wouldn't get that same attention. Uh, well, I think that's fair. It is true that it would be one of many, many issues. But I think um, I, I felt, at least when I heard the discussion about special exception at the beginning of this, of your meeting, that um, I don't think we can assume that with the new code, all the rules for special exception will be the same for a conditional use and that all the rules will be the same for a limited use. And so I guess I was thinking more of administrative efficiency. It seems really inefficient to consider it now and then you're going to have to look at it again later. I can promise you that if the county council passes a ZTA on this subject, we will not change one word in the zoning ordinance rewrite. Well, all I can say is I remember the CR zones. Remember what yeah, we. That's the purpose of this. I mean, I think Mr. Dreyfus said it well. There was a concern that accessory apartments would either get buried in the rewrite and not get sufficient attention or would attract so much attention that it would cause people not to see the rest of what was going on in the rewrite. Well, I mean, I respect, I respect those views. I'm just saying I, I think it could be very inefficient. You're going to end up looking at it again, and you may get the same hullabaloo the next time. So, um, But I was going to ask if I could possibly have like one more minute or something, because I, you all were asking questions, and I didn't really get to finish. I only have a couple more points that I would like to make. Well, but the, the timer may or may not have stopped it when we started talking to you. Usually they do, but I don't know. If OK. They do. So okay. Go, you, you can have a little bit more. All right, I'll just be very quick. Um, I was saying. Um, the change is that things have been more relaxed, and I was pointing out that um, now there'll be nine people and, and only one parking space required off-site. They're also you're also removing the compatibility requirement, where the, if you had new construction, it would need to be compatible with the. Oh, uh, and how are you getting from nine to nine more nine more people? No, it's only nine total. It's six. You're allowed to have six in a single-family home. Un unrelated. Right. Okay. But, okay. Five, but to be clear, there's six. only three. And then plus three. Three, three in addition. No. I. Yeah. yeah. If I. I have it. I have it 
clear. I don't have you, nine. You should know that a single family home requires two parking spaces. Okay, so that gives you three. Okay. Um, okay. And then finally, can, there can was. I start just one clarification. I'm sorry because I know you still get to finish. F only five allowed in a single family home? I thought no, it was six. Five, only five allowed. Five unrelated people can okay. constitute a household. Got it. I don't, I don't think we limit how many people. Right. If you could have a family of. Can live in a home. Right. I mean, you know, some people have eight right. children. Well, five unrelated people, you're saying. I thought it was six, including the owner. But anyway, okay. Five, then it's a total of eight of people on the property, on the lot. Okay. Um, I, and I was just pointing out the differences. I'm not always saying to go back to the to the way it is, but you've removed the compatibility requirement, and there now is a requirement that the principal dwelling unit has to be at least five years old, and that's no longer a requirement. Um, Why do you think that's a good thing? I didn't say I think it's a good thing. I'm saying I just was listing all the things that have changed. This is much more relaxed. Okay, I'm not asking that all those things be put in a new new ordinance. Um, now, what I was going to say, oh, on detached accessory units, which we haven't talked about at all, detached accessory apartments of any size should not be permitted on standard sized R60 and R90 lots. All my comments have been addressed to R60 and R90. Um, currently, a homeowner must have either a minimum of one acre to remodel an existing detached accessory apartment or two acres to build a new one. Thus, what was exclusively a large lot use now becomes a potential use on any lot zoned R60 or R90, so long as the lot meets the minimum size allowed in the zone. A patchwork of detached accessory apartments throughout single-family neighborhoods will disrupt the land use pattern of our neighborhoods. We would never allow such a pattern in creating new lots through subdivision. We've all, you've all dealt with a situation where there's a real lot behind another lot, but you won't let a house be built there, but now you're going to allow these uh, smaller units. And then my last point, the new requirement to address excessive concentration of accessory apartments in the R60 and R90 is that an accessory apartment must not be located within 300 feet of another accessory apartment or be located on a lot or not an, or a lot abutting the rear lot line of any property with an existing accessory apartment. That's a laudable uh, way to try to stop excessive units, but it can be circumvented by the special exception process. So in other words, what this ZTA says is you get these apartments by right, but let's say your neighbor gets their their unit by right, and you're like, wait, I want one. You can get it by special exception. Well, it's the same thing now. I mean, currently, you know, the same anti-proliferation language exists in the special exception process, and uh, to my knowledge, it has never prevented a special exception from being granted, or at least not in the last 10 years. But then all I'm saying is you, you, how are you dealing with excessive concentration? You're just making it a little harder, but if it's never been denied, well, that's a, question. You shouldn't that's have a question for the zoning ordinance rewrite, or perhaps for some future examination of that special exception. But we're not, you know, this CTA is not trying to amend the requirements for an accessory apartment as a special exception. Okay. Right? Except Ross, in so true? far as you're what you said to me earlier was that if you establish the standard for the permitted use. Well, if some, I guess I'm, I'm, I guess I need the staff to explain what would be 
I mean, only certain accessory apartments would then require a special exception. But we would, we would, are we proposing any, are you proposing any changes to the standards under which they would be reviewed from the current special exception standards? Well, the way, it's, the way it's set up is the existing standards would apply to the existing, to the accessory apartments that are existing as of the effective date of the, of this provision if this gets approved. So any new special exception would actually have to adhere to the to these standards that we put in place here. Now, uh, for example, if they're allowed by right, the only way that uh, those by right uses could come through for a special exception on certain issues related to that the location within 300 feet if, if they believe that that number uh, is mm -hmm. too far uh, parking parking on site if they believe that there's a there's a way that they can address parking on the street so there there are ways to go through a special exception to address uh, some of the issues that you brought up and there's one more um, would they be able to submit for a special exception to increase size or no, the size is limited to to that uh, would require a variance. Yes, I, I can't uh, imagine that under our variance law it would be almost impossible to get. Uh, how about the detached accessory apartments that you propose in some zones as a special exception? Would would the, they be reviewed under the current it, special exception standards? Uh, as a no, if they come in as a new, no, they have to adhere to the new standards, uh, unless we unless we modify this to to make it clear that, you know, any, but see that wouldn't that wouldn't really make sense. I mean, we wouldn't really need the the standards that we have in place to to. Uh, well, no, we could do. I guess that. I didn't see changes to 59G it, it, two point something. It, no, whatever we, the specific we, we conditions are for the special exception. No, but at the well, at at the beginning of that section, it's we have language in there that says, uh, if for those special exceptions that are existing as of this this date, these standards still apply. But that doesn't answer my question. In your in your chart, your proposed use chart, there are some types of accessory apartments that you recommend be permitted just as a special exception. Yes, right. Under what standards would they be reviewed? Okay, they will be reviewed under the new standards and the general, and the general standards that are in place in the zoning ordinance now. So so the G that uh, 59G1 general standards uh, and the new uh, specific standards. So let's see if I can. Oh, I see there's a cross reference in 59G200 to 59A6.2. Yes. Okay. Yes. I got it. Yes. Sorry. No, that's fine. Now, now, I mean, it's a good question. If do you want any use that's that comes in as a special exception use to adhere to this to the standards that are in place now or or I mean that that's a I mean that's a legitimate question if if um, you believe that 
the existing provisions should prevail if they come through for a special exception. We we looked at the new standards as as uh, you know uh, standards that are adequate, but also uh, you know including some of the relaxation um, provisions in there in terms of location, 300 feet or 500 feet, whichever the, the zone is, and and the parking requirement. And there's one more that I'm not really. No, I, I hate to say this, but I, I think we may need to work um, a little bit on um, what kind of, on, on giving some instructions to the Board of Appeals on what they do with something that you know, if we send it up in this manner that you're allowed 800 square feet, but you can ask for more than that with a special exception. No, no, you, no, you, not, that's oh, not okay. one of the I provisions. That. All right. Okay, if you look on line, uh, line 94, uh, okay. um, on page, I guess, six. Oh, I see. The location okay. of and the entrance, the number of parking spaces, or the minimum distance, but not the size. Yes, and it, it gives oh, you I the see. That's what You gave them instructions there. Yeah, I gave them instructions. Okay. As All right. Do we have more questions for Ms. Wellington, or shall we respond to some of her questions that she's asked? Um, I wanted to respond to um, the mention of, of unrelated persons. Um, the current language does say that you can't have an accessory apartment in a building that's occupied by unrelated persons, but um, that language is not enforced because the hearing examiners believe, and I believe the Board of Appeals as well, that it violates our own human rights law because our human rights law says that you cannot discriminate in, the, in providing housing based on marital status. So um, I support staff's recommendation to take that out because I think it's inconsistent with our human rights law and we shouldn't have provisions that violate our own laws. So that's where that came from. I just thought that explanation might be helpful to folks. Um, and I guess, you know, we have to have a little bit of common sense when we review um, this kind of law to think about the likelihood that an individual who um, is required to live in the house wants to live with four other unrelated people in the main dwelling plus three unrelated people in the accessory apartment that is attached to their house. I, I, I think that that is unlikely. And so I, that particular scenario is, I, I just, it, it's hard for me to imagine. I, I also, I guess I have a question that we might want to research, which is whether, it was my understanding that you're allowed to rent two bedrooms in your home. So I guess, I guess how do five unrelated people end up living in a home together? Can you turn on your thing? Um, because they're the definition of a household, so you don't have to be renting to be five unrelated people in a house. So you could be having people, letting people live there without charging them money? Yeah. Even less likely. Yeah. Well, unless you're pretending you're not charging them money, which I suppose is a difficult enforcement problem. Okay, there were a number of questions. Maybe staff can respond to some of them. DHCA process, will it be a field visit? Will information be independently verified? Okay, so, um, you know, currently uh, before the, uh, during the special exception process, a DHCA goes out and does do an inspection prior to the hearing. 
uh, once the a unit is approved, they go back out to do the second inspection as part of the licensing. So they do an inspection um, for the hearing and they do the inspection for the licensing. Um, they also do all the annual inspections and licensings for registered living units. We see the um, permitted by right small attached unit as very similar, I guess, in the way it would operate except that it, as a registered living unit, except for the fact that it actually can um, uh, accept rent. And it's not, um, you don't have to sign an affidavit that it's for a caregiver or a blood relative. So um, as far as the way it would um, work with DHCA, it, my guess is it would be very similar to the current way in which they treat registered living units. So is there, is there a formal written policy that we could, we could see that as well, sort of the process for that and mm -hmm. whether or not, you know, when, when we think about things like enforcement, that's always a difficult issue. So what power does DHCA have to enforce? What are the measures that can be taken? You know, is there a series of fines that set forth when somebody is initially entering into this, you know, type of accessory apartment so that people are sort of aware that you have to maintain a certain standard or you have to comply? Maybe when, maybe, when this, maybe when this comes back to the board, we should ask someone from DHCA to attend Absolutely. our session and sure. talk to us about their enforcement process. Um, DHCA actually has a bigger enforcement team than, than our other enforcement teams. Would it be possible for, for you to circulate to us any information you have on that, those before that? That would be great. Can I, do, I would like to give all of you an opportunity to take a shot at this idea of whatever the state of his enforcement is, or the lack of enforcement, how this makes it worse. I'd like to, I just want to give you the opportunity to, you know, if there's no enforcement now, if, or the enforcement is, you know. I wouldn't say there's no enforcement. Well, okay, if it's lax or it's, you know, right now, uh, whatever you, however you want to characterize it. Let's say it. it's not effect, not fully effective. Yeah, not, there's not enough of it in whatever way, shape, or form you want to characterize it. How is this, how does this make that problem worse? Well, can I speak to that? I'm speaking right now about our 60 and our 90. You've got a whole category of units that don't exist now, the detached units. If there's absolutely no enforcement, that's what you're positing. You can have. I think anybody's positing no oh, well, enforcement. I thought that's what Mr. Anderson was. is asking how you think the whatever enforcement the, problem would get worse. Whatever you think the problem worse. with enforcement is now, and you can tell me what you think it is or isn't. How is it aggravated by adopting this? Uh, because you've got to deal with a whole new kind of unit detached. We don't know how many of those there will be. And because you can just go get a permit without, you know, notice to a neighbors and all, it is more likely you're going to have more units. So if you're comfortable with no enforcement, then it doesn't matter. But if you, know, you the other practical thing that maybe folks don't know is that the, due to staffing limitations, special exceptions are only inspected at most once every three years, whereas DHCA inspects every single registered housing unit every single year. So there is a higher level of inspections for units that are um, under DHCA's enforcement authority. Well, I think what I was really saying at the beginning of my testimony is that this is the kind of public discussion that you should be having you know, with the communities, like in public meetings and things like that. When you look at the material staff gave you on, on Arlington, that's what they did. Um, you're answering the questions for me, and I hope people are listening in, but this is why people are, are upset by this. This is one of the very biggest reasons. It's the concern of no enforcement. Well, okay, but, you know. I, I, 
I think that it'd be useful for all of us to get more information from DHCA before we sit here and say that there is no enforcement. Um, you know, they do have 19 inspectors. I'm sure that they do a great job at what they do, and I think I'd rather hear from them um, a more detailed explanation of the number of, you know, complaints that come in and how many are valid and how many are not. Um, you know, another thing just to mention is, you know, we have a permitted by right guest house in every residential zone in the county, um, and I would guess that, um, that our current DHCA inspectors spend quite a bit of time inspecting those units as suspected accessory apartments. Um, so I, I'd rather hear from them what they think about the inspection situation than for us to believe that it's not sufficient, because it might well be. Are, th are there any s restrictions at all, Pam, on the permitted by uh, right guest house? No. So there's no... There's just, no occupancy, there's is. no parking, because you're not supposed to have anyone living in it. It's for um, transient visitors. Um, now, again, Is there any definition of transient? Is it two months and under? Is it two weeks, they do not define, week? I don't believe the number of weeks you can stay. Six weeks? Six weeks. Months? I, I don't think that's true. Where, where would that be found? I'm I'll just interested in that for in later. The, it's probably in the definition of a guest house. I said that. Yeah. But we can't have remarks from the audience. If you want to speak, come on up to the table. You're welcome to. I was just interested to know from the perspective of you know, if we even have a sense of how many uh, folks are using those or, you know. We, we have an anecdotal sense that there is a significant number of violations of the rules for a guest house. You're not supposed to be charging money. It's supposed to be for guests. Anecdotally, we've heard that there are lots of people who take advantage of the existence of that provision to get a building permit and then they rent it out so every single unit by right can have a guest house I, this, I didn't know this this is something i, I just learned either. quite recently uh, apparently you can build a guest house even in small lot zones miss higgins um i i have to say we uh sent in our package you have a picture of what's just been a uh, i guess adjudicated at this point i don't know what you call it as a guest house but it's it's started off as a special I mean it started off as an illegal accessory apartment and then they just flipped it and said oh well here's one we can use let's use guest house so what they told us from DHCA is that they have absolutely no way to determine how long someone lives there if they are collecting rent and this is a problem for them. Now, these are the actual inspectors on the ground. I, I understand what you're saying. This is what they tell you, but I'm not convinced that this is what actually is practiced because this, my neighbor, has had to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for legal counsel to go to Board of Appeals for this only to be told nothing we can do. So my feeling when you ask, um, you know, if they're not legal now and they're not enforced now, what's the deal? I think I didn't realize how much stronger the CTA was in fact going to make the special exception, the standards of which the special exception, and I like that piece. It didn't occur to me that that was the case. I didn't realize the special exception was so wide. So I'm happy with that piece. You know, the zoning ordinance rewrite in the, the current draft eliminates guest houses as yeah. a permitted use. It needs to be good. If you can't, right. if you can't. In, if you can't decide whether they're supposed to be there or not, you can't enforce you know, anything. There may, there, may have been be a, there may have been a day when that was fine because we weren't, we weren't such a densely populated county. Right. And in the current state of things, I, you know, it, I don't, 
I'm happy to sacrifice the people's ability to have guest houses to avoid this particular enforcement issue. Or they have, they would have to, if we could do that expressly in the CTA, we could just say, you know, there's no such thing as a guest house. Any accessory structure has to meet the same standards, so nobody can try to do what you're saying and yeah. say. I guess I, I yeah. see the picture. Yes. Right. What I'm suggesting is so we the, could the go. So the Board of Appeals denied the special exception. Well, it was on a technicality, but that's what happened. Because it was over 1,200 square feet. No, it's because there was something in the law in the, some law case that happened 20 years ago. It was one of those kind oh. of I can't tell you what it was, but that's what citizens are faced with when you ask about enforcement. That it's the burden of proof is on us. Yeah. And it costs, and we don't have the money for lawyers so, to but, find these little pieces. Yeah. You can ask Marty Hutt, what was it about? So it came as, in as an illegal accessory unit. Well, then so they it just... Wasn't, it wasn't a special exception application. It was an appeal of some decision They were told by, by when the neighbor called in, said, you know, this is illegal. They came in DHCA. They said, move everything out. You can't have the stove. You can't have this, blah, blah, blah. And then they got a lawyer, and the lawyer yeah. said, oh, this is not for that. They're this just going to have their relatives house. live there. And what I'm asking is, can we nail this down? Can we button this up a little bit in this ETA? By because there's no reason we can't add that, although um, we'd have to do that before it's introduced, because we'd have to. I guess I would want to talk to counsel, legal counsel for the county council, to see whether that's adding too many things to one ETA. Uh, well, I would there are rules about uh, you know doing disparate things in a single zoning text amendment, and I, I I'm not that well versed in. Them. I understand, okay. and you know while it, it should be clear right now, I think this is a generally a good idea. I also think it's important that we be, you know, res appropriately responsive to you know, abusive tactics that people use to try to get around the rules. I would I'm not really enamored the idea that everybody should be able to come in and have an adversarial hearing every time you want to build an accessory apartment. I don't think that means that we should have a free-for-all or that there should be, you know, you should be able to try to characterize your unit as a guest house to get into some other regulatory category so you don't have, you can sort of play games with it. And I would hope that we would be able to figure out a way to use this process to work with people like the folks in your neighborhood to try to limit this in a way that's meaningful and substantive. But that, that also suggests that we have to be really definitive about the requirements for, um, you know, enforcement for getting in the door, along with appropriate, that's why I asked what we could see. Enforcement is a little different because it's mm. sort of, you know, it's sort of like saying we could have laws against, you know, bank robbery. <laughs> You know, if, if the police aren't going to go try to catch the bank robbers, it's really, that doesn't speak to whether the law is a good law or a bad law. And we can't be blind to the enforcement culture or, and I would hope that this is a, maybe even a step in the right direction or at least not in the wrong direction as far as, as encouraging an enforcement culture and practice that is more attuned to shutting down these kind of situations where you got, you know, an army of people living in somebody's, you know, outbuilding that's just not you know, everybody would agree that that's just not something we should allow in a, in a single-family detached neighborhood, but there's only so far we can go or that we can take that burden on. Some of it has to, the buck has to stop ultimately with the resources that are available for enforcement that, and whether, and how the executive branch decides to carry out the law. Well, and, and also with, I mean, having that being clearly defined, yeah. the, and, and uh, having the budget 
to be able to meet those requirements because we are, if we are indeed changing something to put new units in the system that require uh, inspection and enforcement, I think it would be irresponsible to just do the ZTA piece and not assure ourselves that that there's something for this to, you know, to be picked up and, and appropriately managed. Um, on that point and also in following what the impact is of the unit occupancies. So if we create several new units in an area, are we really adding any, any school-age children? Do we need to have a way to connect to the other things that we would normally monitor if it were a new development versus a gradual change of the development? But I, you know, I think it the, is a gradual change. By the time we're done, the citizens are going to support the legislation, and the people who think it's going to make it easier are going to oppose it. So, uh, you know, I, 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 well, if you keep to, if you keep doctoring it so that it's uh, really puts more restrictions in, it's not satisfying the purpose that it was intended in the first place. So, uh, what, how I'm, would you I, I'm not taking a position that? one way or the other, but I see it moving in that direction. That it's going to have so many restrictions in it. It's it's may not be able to be implemented anyway. And then we'll eliminate the special exception process. There'll be no way to get them. I'm, I'm just interested to know how you, as a commissioner, how, how do you personally characterize the purpose? The purpose was to simplify the process, not to, and, and take those things that are concerns in the neighborhood and, and in the broader sense, put them in the law. Not every not every concern that the neighbor has to codify it because that takes, you know, that doesn't really accomplish much. Um, and, and if it gets too restrictive, uh, as a number of people said, who's going to enforce it? Are they going to run around and check each one of these each one of these things we put in? Are they going to really make sure that they comply with everything? I, you know, I don't know. Well, so then in that scenario, though, we're, we're loosening the requirements and not increasing enforcement which suggests that if you're if you're saying the point is to make the process easier to what end so that we encourage more units or just so that people don't have to go through a special exception process I mean, if they have the to, if they go to get a special exception and it's a routine matter and it just either takes a you know caring generous time and a lot of money why bother if if we're really applying the same standards that the special exception does in the zoning text amendment. I mean, I thought that's where we were trying to go. We weren't trying to further uh, restrict the, the process. We were trying to make the process not different than it currently is, just easier. What, um, you know, if I, if I were on the citizen side, I'd say, I'm going to load this thing up with so many details that nobody would be able to really get one versus trying to kill it uh, because the special exception process is, you know, like automatic. Uh, but apparently that's not the strategy. So there's a real concern that this is going to make it so easy people are going to do it, and they're, gonna, they're not going to care what all the details are. They're just going to say, well, by the time they catch up to me, it'll be, you know, who's going to come around and check that I did every one of the things on the list that the planning board of the council passed? So we're, you know, if we don't make it um, somewhat comparable to where the special exception standards are now, then we're really not accomplishing much. We have a very restrictive process that probably is going to not be enforced. How do you see it as substantially more restrictive? I mean, there's smaller size. Well, all the details, well, Frank, I haven't been through the special exception process, but what our chair says is that when you go in there, there are certain standards they can apply and not all the things that we're talking about. So, Most of them are the same. 
but not the ones we're talking about adding. Um, the ones that we're talking about adding, I guess the principal differences are the it's the size. Yeah, square footage, a, number a of residents. That would be smaller, and the number of residents. So it, it theoretically would make it more difficult than less difficult. It would make the. It, it it's would not make the it, same. It would limit the ability. It would limit the. Um, it would limit the impacts. It would allow. It would make an easier process. But in exchange, for in exchange for limiting the size of apartments in smaller lot zones and limiting the number of occupants. And, and el eliminating the, the, the dis uh, discretionary, you right. know, provisions of a special exception. I mean, things that, you know, DHCA or DPS, you know, are not in position to, to make a call on. I mean, we've, tr we've tried to quantify some of those provisions as well so could we just hang with that you know, one we have second. two more just speakers who haven't we haven't heard from so I, I think before point we get too far into our deliberations I'd like us to hear from them Ms. Piety thank you <clears throat> um, I, I'd, I'd like to first May of I all ask you to state your name for I'm the sorry uh, Marilyn Piety um, I'm representing Sligo Brandview Community Association um, I'd like to say, in this kind of an issue, as you're all talking about it and all seeing it, the devil is in the details. And I think what, from the, at least from my civic association standpoint, one of the things that we're concerned about is that the worst possibilities be avoided. And right now, uh, everybody seems to be talking about the good things that can happen and the problems that won't exist. But what is going to happen with those that are problems? That's the, that's the issue because, you know, if there are lots of things that are no problem to anybody, then they're no problem. But if there's something that's a big problem and it's next door to me or on my street, that's a big problem and I think that's where we need to focus. Where are the real problems and how can we avoid them? Now, I, I endorse everything that Meredith Wellington said. I'm not going to repeat that. Um, but I, I want to describe to you uh, my neighborhood because, again, often what I hear people talking about, there's an assumption that we have a generic one neighborhood, they're all the same pretty much. Well, my neighborhood was built in the 30s, 40s, a few houses in the 50s. but. Pretty much that's it. So the standards that they were built on, lot size, street size, lack of sidewalks and everything, that's the standards that we live with all the time. If we, most of our houses do not have driveways. A few do, but you cannot assume driveways at every house. Uh, somebody mentioned uh, two parking spaces per uh, house are required maybe for new houses. I don't know of any houses in my neighborhood that have two off-street parking spaces. There may be a couple where they've concreted over the front yard or something, but by and large, our houses were built with no parking space, no driveways. And so people have to park on the street. Furthermore, we live, we're, we're um, abutting some uh, low-income apartments where people um, 
double up in apartments and stuff, many cars and trucks, and those folks come and park in our neighborhood, which creates a parking problem. Um, our streets are so narrow that if cars are parked on two sides of the street, two cars cannot pass. What, ha what you have to do routinely, every day this is what happens, you have to pull into a vacant parking space so one guy can pass through and then you can pull out. That's the way we negotiate. And with the number of people we have in the neighborhood, it, it works. If, the, if there are a lot of cars, one of those two cars that want to pass might have to back up considerably before they find a spot that they can do it. So when you're talking about cars, this is what we're living with, and I know we're not the only neighborhood in Montgomery County that has that problem. Furthermore, as I say, we have, we have a lot of rentals, houses that are rented. So I know there are some real estate value things of how much rentals, what effect that has. Well, we're not a neighborhood of 100% homeowners. We're a good neighborhood, we have a lot of homeowners, but we do have rentals. Um, some of the apartments that are uh, near us, adjoin us, uh, also are, as I said, double families, doubling up, groups of people living and stuff. We're very affected by that, and so we're not a neighborhood that you should look to where you want to add affordable housing kinds of things, because our houses, we are an affordable neighborhood to begin with. And, um, and I think you need to take that into consideration. What kind of neighborhood are you talking about? When was it built? What do they have to start with? Um, and one parking space for an accessory unit wouldn't, it, it just wouldn't help. I don't know in some cases where they put it. We have a lot of lots that are only 5,000 square feet, not six, because when they were built, 5,000 was the standard. Um, that's a whole different, uh, uh, a different animal that you're talking about. You've talked a lot about the lack of enforcement. It, it sounds nice when people say, well, this person is going to do this and that. Believe me from experience, enforcement doesn't happen. It's very difficult. And what do people do if there's no enforcement? Sometimes they move, go to another apartment, and who buys the house next to that? That is a, a problem. Um, I think much more discussion, has, as said here, has to be, uh, should go on before the this is sent to the council. We have to work on these kinds of details because they're important details and they're details that haven't been really thought about. And, and due respect to some of the people who've given you assurances of how things have happened, that's not the experience of people who live in neighborhoods and can have these problems. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Piety. Ms. Higgins? Um, hello, I'm Judy Higgins. I um, represent Kensington View Civic Association, Land Use and Zoning Committee. So I'm not going to go over everything. You guys got our detailed assessment. I'm sure you missed them, right? Been them for a while. Warmed my heart to I'm get sure. another one. <laughs> so I just want you to note again, these two deals, this is just two of what we're dealing with. This What was, is the brick one? The brick one is uh, was a, sh uh, a regular tool shed that the county decided it was okay that they went ahead and expanded it to be that large even though it crossed the lot line. What's it called? Um, it's called a, what is it called? A studio, right. 
Well, it was it was garage studio shed. Who knows? Now does it's it, just, now it, it's become a studio. That's what they call it. Does it have a kitchen? Uh, well, they can't go in there. Who can't go in there? DPS says they cannot go in there. There's no reason to until there's a reason to. Um, they were supposed to be putting a garage door on that because initially it was a garage, but that's what the plans show. There's no garage door there. Is this like in somebody's backyard? Yeah, this is in the backyard of the house here. And then I have a house right here, Mrs. Savalane, who's been here before. This is her house next door. But DPS finds this perfectly fine. It's a, a studio. Uh, it doesn't have a toilet. We saw them put the toilet in, the water run. Does this make uh, any sense to you, Mr. Russ? This is what we are faced with, Mr. Russ. <laughs> and um, I, I don't know what to well, say, except I can tell you what inspectors say. Their hands are tied. They yeah. can't tell if they're putting plumbing in there because they don't come back. They say the hole is dug deeply. That's uh, for whatever it is they're doing. That's fine. We'll come back. And then they come back. It's already closed in. They don't know if they put water pipes in there or plumbing of any kind or whether they just put the pad. Well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead. No, I, I'm, I'm looking at this, unfortunately, as an accessory structure. Is it meeting the accessory structure provisions of the zoning ordinance, if, you know, in terms of height setbacks, and, yes. which are pretty stringent? Allegedly. Yeah. Um, but in terms of that. what's going on inside there? Uh, they, can't, the, they can't go in. There's no reason to. Yeah. If but it's, that, that really, I don't think it really has anything to do with this law. Because no. it doesn't. You know, this, no. this it doesn't. GTA no. would um, bring more things, I think, into DHCA's. Radar. And then they that's, inspect once right. a year and they have the right and to And that's go what inside. I heard today. And, and I like that because this is totally illegal. It wouldn't be illegal. I mean, I think if it. You suspect it's being used as an apartment? Well, it's going to be. It hasn't probably started quite yet. But what? It's clearly going to be. Why would they otherwise do that? But there's nothing that, that we would do with the ZTA that would require no, there is these existing things to come. No. Right, but, but what I'm saying to you is this is the kind of thing for that... For someone not to avoid it and do the same thing if we right. still have so if you structure. Uh, right. I mean, I mean, it, it, could, it could also be a, it could be a workspace where someone has a, you know, a, a, a restroom in there. I mean, people are known to do there that. There could be somebody who's a, who is an artist. Yeah. It's an artist studio, yeah. and, but and they want a bathroom so they don't have to go to the main house. But that should be inspected. But it sh and it should be. I don't know why they can't go inside. Don't ask me. That's what they say. Yeah. But anyway, let me go on with my deal because okay. I don't have. I'm, you guys have covered so much, and I, I appreciate the idea of um, really looking closely at that. I didn't start off having a nice thing to say today, particularly, but I'm not going to be so non. You can't help yourself. You always come up with something nice. Yeah, I, I just, I, I really do. I mean, I was apologizing before every bad thing I was saying. But I want to say a few things that I have noticed. Um, you know, everything that we have to do as residents to protect our neighborhood, period, unless you do something in the CTA that really sets the standards, like Mr. Dreyfus says, that kind of shoots it in the foot for the reason why you're doing it, um, it's all complaint-driven, unless it's a registered unit. So the majority of what is currently in our affordable smart growth areas, close to Metro, are not legal. They are not registered units of any kind. Therefore, if you look at the other part of our attachment, you'll see just on one block how many affordable units we already have. Um, so, and, and, and what the chair said earlier about when you do call for inspections, just 
for when you speak to DHCE. They can't go in. It's because of the human rights thing. They can't look. They can't. They can knock on the door and say how many people live here, but they can't check that out. There's no way of knowing that. So, I just want to add that. Um, now I have a fundamental issue. I'd really like to bring up. If this goal, which is for affordable housing, which is quite laudable, but in my neighborhood, we have plenty affordable. We have actually affordable single-family homes available. That's what makes our neighborhood so desirable, and we're 0.6 from the metro. So we are the poster child for all that we're asking for. But when I'm, if this is truly just about getting more affordable housing options for people, then why are we allowing developers to take our most vital metro areas, our transit areas, such as Wheaton, and those apartments that are going up, which are almost 1,000 as we speak in the pipeline, they are not going to be market rate except 12.3. Why aren't we having the bigger discussion of increasing the number of MPDUs? Why are we continuing to try to put it on well, the backs of everybody that's, else? I mean, that's I'm going to say this at council, but I just... Yeah, that's just not... I, and I will, but I, but I mean, if it's all about affordable I, I housing, think, uh, and we're going to be taking a back seat to make what our wishes are, whether I agree or not... Well, I think an economist would call this uh, supply substitution, where even if the new units are not, mar are not affordable, by increasing the overall supply of housing in the area, you're also... You know, if you assume there's going to be X number of people who are in the area because their jobs are here, right? But they aren't here. But okay. Well, you're going to have a certain amount of whatever you know economic growth is. You're going to attract a certain number of people to the area, and they're going to decide, hey, I need to live here somewhere, whether it's in Wheaton or somewhere else in Montgomery County or somewhere else in the region. You know that might be, you know, subject to what they can find. And so, if you create more units, even if they're not affordable units, you're by increasing the overall supply of housing, you're going to create more. There's going to be more slots available, and and that effectively winds up, you know, creating openings for other people who can take the affordable units. I think. Well, you see, which I, is I not to say we shouldn't also increase I, the MPD requirements. I or think have, this is but, lofty, though, to think that we have in the sector plan that we just worked through tirelessly for years um, with the new CR zoning on all the edges of our particular neighborhood. We're gonna, we could possibly have 338,000 square feet of residential units. And Wheaton used to be until it is currently still affordable. But you're taking, you're, you're, I, I guess it's just a fundamental problem I have. It's like I get that accessory apartments would be, I, I mean, I've listened to your discussion today and I understand the idea. But if it's really just about affordable, I think that needs to be where the transit is. It doesn't have to be necessarily making the option more clear and obvious so we don't have so many illegals would be great. But I, I, I'm just seeing this as a real problem because I know that I, I talk to developers a lot and they complain all the time and I've heard Mr. Dreyfus say, you know, that you can't put more than 12.3 or we won't make any money. Well, you know. We can't have every seventh house be an, uh, an accessory apartment that perhaps for one minute is excess, you know, is, is uh, or maybe the first incarnation of it is, is permitted, but then after that it's not. So it's just an unfair burden because the only thing we can do is call and say, we have a problem here. And whether it gets fixed or not is not necessarily well, uh, to relevant. That, to that point, I think the aspiration here, I don't know if it's realistic or not, to be honest with you, but it's that 
if you have standards which are reasonable, both from the point of view of the na neighborhood and also the point of view of somebody who wants to create an accessory apartment or somebody who wants to rent an accessory unit, then you've sort of narrowed the scope of the enforcement issue. So if somebody calls up the inspector and says, I'm upset because you know, I think there's somebody who's got an accessory unit, you know, in the, off the back of their house, and you know, really they're upset because the person's, you know, playing their loud music all night long, or whatever their you know problem is with the with the tenant. The inspector can say, "Well, do you have any reason to think that there's more than three people living there, and that, that it's more than 800 square feet, or that it violates?" And if the answer is no, I just don't like the fact there's an accessory unit there. The inspector can say, "Sorry, the law says this is what you get, and you can sort of." You, there's no need to inquire further. Whereas if there's somebody who says no, seriously, there's ten people living in the in this, you know, outbuilding, and it's just you know it's completely out of hand. Then the inspector says, well, okay, that's different. I can now. This sounds like something where there's something going on that's outside the rules. So I'm going to go out and knock on the door and see how many people are living there and what's what's going on. That this kind of, you know limits the number of cases which are sort of ripe for enforcement resources to be focused and takes the other set of things which are basically, you know, a small unit with a reasonable number of people living in it with a reasonable amount of parking attached, if we can figure out what that, that is, that are just kind of off the table and they're not, we don't have to have these arguments whether it's in the special exception process or whether it's with the inspector. So re revising what you're saying a bit though, the first question from a complaint call would be whether or not it's a registered, yeah. uh, right? And which which, which and would say you would need to have uh, violation sort of penalties established, almost the way we do when someone violates an easement, uh, so that there doesn't have to be uh, that there doesn't it doesn't have to be a special procedure determined for each case. And then right. beyond that. If the, which is why I was focusing on what the DHCA procedure will be and what it is now and how much, how many staff they'll have, is that beyond that, if the inspections by routine are only once a year, someone can start out with two people or two people on paper. They might have five to who knows how many in actuality, and there has to be assurance for the community that there can be a quick response to that um, and some sort of penalty and not and not sort of th a throwing up of hands saying you know we. We don't want to put people out. I, I would agree. You kind of don't want to put people out of a home, but but if we're establishing parameters which have to be met, that we need to have a way to enforce this. But, but how do we address that? How would we address that issue? I I don't know how we can how we can word something like that. But I think we need to have some sort of indication that there's a contingency on the ability to support. And I don't know if that just comes in a discussion uh, with council, as we were saying, to hear in the next hearing from DHCA and what we could put into place so that we know that we're that we would be ZTA ready. Um, because if we just do this without considering these things and assuring ourselves that there is a process, then I think we're being remiss because well, I don't think it will have the the effect we're looking for. Yeah, but you know what? This this accessory unit issue has been kicking around since well before my time, and I'm sure this won't be the last word. I, it was discussed in the ZAP before it was taken out. There's been an extent. It's not like this is some. This somebody, is the first time we've heard it. Well, okay, but it's not like somebody came up with this brilliant idea of accessory units yesterday, and we said, let's go pass it. Let's go send a ZTA to the council. And I mean, this is this is an issue which has been kicked around for quite a long time. As somebody, I think the staff had pointed out in the report that was in 
you know, the executive had a task force a few years back that re that recommended a step in this in this direction. I I don't think there's a reason to, especially because the council is going to do what the council is going to do. I, I don't think there's any reason not to send it to the council. We're going to get another bite at it. We're going to, yeah, we're not going to pretend that we have the going to pretend that we have the yeah we're not.